you for listening to this message from Rocky Mountain Christian Ministries in Gunnison, Colorado. We hope you will visit us at rmcmchurch.org, like our Facebook page, or subscribe to our messages on YouTube. So, uh, for those of you who have been with us and and those of you who haven't, um, we're in a series called Gospel Gleanings. We've just been looking primarily, as it turns out, through uh, verses in the Gospel of John. Uh, But we're just picking up different passages throughout the summer uh, from the Gospels and uh, just going through them. And today... I want to go into John chapter 8 and look at some of these passages, or probably both of these passages, if we even get to both of them, are uh, very familiar to you. But I want to lay a little bit of context. We've spent a lot of time in John chapter 5, spent some in John chapter 6. So in John chapter 7, which we're not going to look at today, um, but we're going to talk about for a minute, because the context of it is really important. All of this, John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, both took place Uh, when Jesus was at one of the seven annual feasts of Israel. He was at the Feast of Tabernacles. And I won't go into all of that detail, but one thing we know, and the the scripture tells us, is that on the last day of that feast, which they considered the greatest day of the feast, okay, one of the things that took place is that the priests came out. We've talked about this in the past. The priests came out and they had large jars of water that were then poured out on the, the steps leading up to the temple, essentially. And, and so they poured this water out. And I'd, I'm not actually certain. I mean, I'd have to go look. I'm not certain what that meant to them. But as in all of those feasts, the seven feasts of Israel, as they practiced them throughout the generations and the, and the, the years, they all spoke of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. They were all prophetic in nature. They gave a picture of something that was not yet there. There was a meaning for that time, but there was a meaning beyond that. So here, so here they are, and they come out, and they pour out this water, a lot of water, poured it out on the very foundation, the, the steps leading up to the temple. Well, that was a prophetic image that spoke of the New Testament. It spoke of us as believers. The, the New Testament tells us we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? You ever heard that? Okay, I know you have. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that is an image of that outpouring of water, that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in John chapter 7, talked about, he made those statements that we're familiar with. He said, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink, right? And he said, anyone who believes in me out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He did this in this context with this water being poured out on the temple. And so the idea there is it is a prophetic image of who we are and what we have in the New Testament. And we've studied this before. We'll just touch on it today. In fact, we did a pretty extensive study on the ministry of the Holy Spirit and and two primary aspects of it. One, that when we are born again, the Holy Spirit comes into us to live in us and he begins to work and change us as the temple of the Holy Spirit. He starts to redecorate a lot of our thoughts and our attitudes and, and all of that that goes on for our whole life. But at the new birth, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in 
every believer and begins to work in us and for us. And then at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we find in the book of Acts, the Holy, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come upon us, be poured upon us. We would be baptized, saturated with the Holy Spirit, and power would begin to flow out from us. So the Holy Spirit comes upon or into us at the new birth for us. He comes upon us at the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, for others, to for his life to be poured out through us. And we see all of that played out in the book of Acts. But this is going to become really important. So, so Jesus, if you read John chapter 7, Jesus just went through that with the people that are going to show up in John chapter 8. Okay, he just went through all of that. He talked about, and, and John says there when he said that Anyone who believes in me, rivers of living water will pour out of them. Rivers of living water will pour out of them. And John records, he says that was, he was talking about the Holy Spirit who hadn't been poured out yet because Jesus had not been glorified. He hadn't been raised from the dead yet. Okay, so, so that's the context as we start to come into uh, John chapter 8. And we can just start reading in in verse 1 of John chapter 8. I'll, I'll read from the NIV for a while today. It says, uh, But Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives, so that's where they stayed at night. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started right on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard, I like that, those who heard, those who were actually listening, got what he was saying, began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up. So all that time he's writing on the ground. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, No one, sir. He says, Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. All right, so let's go back and start breaking this down. So so it's really interesting. So these guys, religious leaders, they bring this woman into the middle of a group out in public into the middle of a group and put her in front of Jesus and say, hey, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. So, you know, I begin to wonder right away, so where were you that you caught this woman in the act of adultery? But, you know, and, but anyway, what's interesting here is that Jesus, they, they ask this question but Jesus answers them. The answer that he gives to them addresses the motive of their heart. He doesn't even answer the question about the law and the application of the law and all of that. 
And he does that, I mean, he does that with us. We'll ask a question and the answer that'll come back in our hearts or the answer that'll come back through the scripture, a lot of times it addresses the motive of our heart or, or something in our heart that needs to change a context for what we're asking that isn't about the actual question that we were trying to get the answer to. It's the real answer. It's what we need. But he often answers according to the, the motive. And that's what he does here. But it's interesting that that he they ask him this question. He's teaching. And he stoops down and starts to write on the ground, starts right in the dust. And there, there are a number of ideas about why he did that, you know, and, but I really believe that it ties back, and a lot of Bible scholars believe, this ties back to a prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, where it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Why? Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Jesus, the day before, talked about being that spring of living water. Anyone who believes in me out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. So in this place, this is another one of these places in the scripture. And and again, I know I've said this to you throughout this particular series. There are a lot of people who, who will try to say that, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never really claimed to be the Messiah, the son of God. He never, he didn't use that terminology, but see, we're just, we're in this, we don't get it. We don't get what just happened here. But when he bent down with these with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and he started writing the dust, Jeremiah 17, 13 comes back to their mind. What he is doing is saying, you have rejected the spring of living water and your name is being written in the dust. It, it's an obvious, he is, it, does, it doesn't say it, but the image that they would get is this guy again, again, is saying that he's the Messiah. Again, he's saying that he's the prophesied one. He is linking himself to this prophecy in Jeremiah. And that's why I went through that context about what he just just said the day before. That's got to be in their minds as they come to this point. And he bends down and he begins to write in the dust, probably, we don't know, probably writing their names, more than likely, in the dust fulfilling Jeremiah 17, 13, okay? So it's just one of those things that we don't, we don't get when we just, I never got, when we just read through the scripture, but it's there, okay? So under the Old Testament law, it's true, adultery was punishable by a, a public execution. And we've said this over and over and over, but people, you know, people look at the Old Testament and they look at the New Testament and, so, and if they don't understand what's going on, they feel like it's a different God, you know, that Jesus has a whole, is a whole different person than the Father in the Old Testament. And he's not. What's different is the covenant. You know, we're told that we, I read something like that and I find, you know, I, I think, man, am I glad that I live on this side of the cross. We live in this completely different covenant than the old covenant. And just to, just a couple 
of the main reasons for that old covenant is it did, it highlighted the severity of sin, how serious sin was in, in its, um, its, its impact on us to harden our hearts, to separate us from God, to separate us from who we were created to be. Sin is obviously throughout the Old Testament. It's severe and it is immediately judged because Jesus hadn't come yet. And it was, and we've said this over and over. It's, it, let me back up just a little. This, it, the Old Testament highlights the severity of sin and the purity of God's holiness. And in that, it shows there is a divide between the two. And that divide could not be worked out through law. It becomes so apparent that, that we, we couldn't keep the whole law. We couldn't do it. And that divide had to be dealt with. And God had a system of sacrifice of animals to temporarily deal with that, with that space between sin and God's holiness. He, he had a provision. He had a provision for worship. He had a provision for sacrifice. But it was temporary. It didn't change things permanently. Only the blood of Christ would change that permanently. And we get to live on this side of the cross. So one of the purposes of the Old Testament is to show that divide and show that we, we can't keep that. The second one is to demonstrate what it's like to have sin and judgment for sin without grace, without the provision of grace being put in the middle. And that's mainly what I want to talk to you about today because there's so much misunderstanding about grace. And in our culture, there are some really, really, I'm trying to think of a different word besides bad, but it fits, bad, incorrect things being taught about what grace means, what grace is, what the nature of God, you know, there's a whole segment in our in our nation, Western uh, in the Western Church, that's taking the the grace of God and 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 the forgiveness that Jesus offers to a real extreme, and saying it, it just sin doesn't matter anymore. God never. In fact, though though I have friends who have gone down this direction, and they've come to a place where they say, "Oh no, you know, don't even say that Jesus, the the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, was to pay the price for our sin." Because God never held a price. God never, it's like it never mattered to God. God was just always in love with us, didn't care what we did, don't, doesn't care what we do now. It, it, none of it matters because God is love. Well, that's a misinterpretation of the nature of God. It is not the God of the Bible. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. And it's not the nature of love that's presented to us in the Bible. And I think I, I feel like I harp on this somewhat with us because I don't want you getting caught up in that. I have friends who I've walked with for years who have gone down that, uh, the, you know, there's this whole progressive wing of the church that is redefining terms and uh, coming to a place of universalism, which just means because of what Jesus did, everybody say, if God never cared, doesn't matter how you live, doesn't matter what you do. That's not a biblical teaching. And it takes people into error. And some of these people I know were walking close with God, but they started uh, kind of down this road of, you know, what's, what's known as the emergent church or progressive end of, of the church. And they've ended up really in the ditch. And I don't want that for you. 
So I want you to have a good understanding of how all of this works. But the point is, one of, one of the things the Old Testament teaches us is that sin does have a price. Sin has to be judged and accounted for. And what Jesus came to do was to put that grace in between. And, and why is that important to you? Not only is that important for your life, but we as the church need to understand what grace is and how to extend grace to people. We're his hands and feet on the earth. So we are the ones who are out there and, and where there's sin and there's judgment or where there's sin is abounding, grace much more abounds. We need to be the ones that can step in and offer, is this making sense, the grace of God to our friends, our neighbors, and help them come to and receive what Jesus has done for them. Does that make sense to you? So we need to understand, and this is, I think, this little passage is one of the clearest passages that we have on the difference between law and grace. You know, Paul did a lot of teaching on it, and and those are awesome, but Jesus demonstrates it here. He demonstrates it so clearly. So, So getting back to this, so they bring this woman and... Uh, and, and just two, I'll just give you two verses. We're not going to look at them. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 talks about adultery, okay? And Deuteronomy 22, 22. Both of those say, and most of you know this, both of them, it, it is true. The punishment for adultery was public execution by stoning. But it was both the man and the woman, not just the woman. Not just the woman gets brought, which these guys, this, this whole thing was never about redemption, certainly. It was never even about justice. It was never about the law. It was about, and the scripture tells us, it was about trapping Jesus in his words. This whole thing was illegitimate. And I immediately, I mean, God, number one, is no respecter of persons. You know, that may seem super harsh and and tough to us, but again, it was about the demonstration of the severity of sin, the holiness of God, what it looks like to have sin and judgment without grace. It was to lead us to Christ. So yeah, it was a harsh punishment, but it was there, but it was for both parties. It was not for one party. God is no respecter of persons. It was, it was equal consequences for, for the sin, okay? And so these guys just bring the one person and they bring her in. And so I'm thinking, so number one, where's the man, okay? And number two, you know, was this whole thing, because it's a setup, obviously, to, to try to trap Jesus. It's the whole purpose. Who's the man? Is the man one of their party? Is the man somebody that was sent in to set up the woman to bring her in? Where is this guy? You know, if you were there and she was in the act of adultery, if she was in the act, does everybody understand what that means? There were two people there during the act, okay? They only brought one. So this whole thing is unjust. This whole thing is is illegitimate. And Jesus bends down and begins to write in the dust. Because, and that's saying, you have rejected the one who gives life. You have rejected that, that spring of living water in everything 
that you're doing here. Does that make sense to you? Okay. The scripture tells us, and this is from the Passion Translation, John 1.17, says Jesus came, says Moses gave us the law, but Jesus the Anointed One unveils truth wrapped in tender mercy. Truth wrapped in tender mercy. So Moses brought the law. Jesus brought truth and grace. And in your, uh, you know, aside from the Passion or some of those other translations, just in your more mainstream translations, that's what it says, grace and truth, okay? And that little word and in there, grace and truth. In English, we know what and means. It's a conjunction. It draws two things together, you know, and, and it's the same way in Greek, but it's much like so many things in the Greek. It's much broader, and it, it draws the two together. It can be used in various ways, but it draws the two together and links them inseparably. So it's not just that some days Jesus brought grace and some days he brought truth. And that's why I like what the Passion says. He brought truth wrapped in tender mercy. He brings those two things together. Truth is truth and it doesn't change. Truth is truth. Adultery is sin. All right, truth is truth, but Jesus brings it wrapped in tender mercy. He he inserts grace into that to give an opportunity for repentance. The insertion of grace into any situation gives an opportunity to change. It it is the bumper between between sin and judgment. It is the place where it doesn't, it doesn't say sin doesn't matter. Grace never says sin doesn't matter. In fact, turn over to Titus um, chapter 2. Uh, go to Titus chapter 2 with me. I love these verses. Um, some people don't, but, but I love these verses because they tell us the truth. Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. His name is Jesus. All right? The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. Oh, boy. Upright self-controlled. Does that mean I just can't do or I shouldn't do everything I want to do? Could the Bible actually say that? We, we shouldn't read these passages. Uh, say no to ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is what grace teaches us. This is what grace teaches us. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grace, does it never compromises truth. In fact, we've seen that in the New Testament, Jesus was clear on this. He said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, since we're on the subject, all right? And they said, but I say, if you've lusted after that person in your heart, you've, you've already committed adultery. It doesn't mean it's the unforgivable sin. It means you need to recognize it as sin, okay? Higher standard. Grace provides a higher standard. The, you've heard it said, don't murder, okay? Well, that's a good, that's a good word. We should all stop murdering, but... I say, if you're angry with your brother, it's the same, okay? If you stay angry, if you don't move into forgiveness, it's the same. It's a higher, grace actually pro, pro, um, calls for 
a higher standard of morality, a higher standard of holiness. Why? Because grace, remember, we've studied this 10,000 times. Grace is not only, that word in the scripture is not only the unmerited favor of God. It is that, but it is also divine ability to do what we could never do on our own. It's the divine ability of the Holy Spirit moving through us, empowering us to, in, in this kind of case, to overcome sin, to get on top of sin, to, move, to have that broken out of our lives. It is the divine power of God to do that. So because there's that provision of grace, then the New Testament can require something more of us because God's giving us the way to do it. He's providing the power to do it. Okay, so so grace doesn't compromise with truth. It doesn't ignore, it doesn't affirm, it doesn't celebrate. It empowers the believer with divine ability to, to resist sin, to get on top of sin, to resist the devil, to, to uncover his schemes, to go and to actually become more and more and more like Jesus. Okay, does that make sense? That's good. So, uh, He goes on here, and and beginning in verse 7, it says, When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So right there, he establishes the basis on which it is allowable for the individual believer. And please note that word. This is to the individual believer. This is the basis on which it is allowable for us to past sentence on someone else's sin. I'm not, let me try to make this clear. Let me just stay with the first thought, okay? This is the basis. When you're perfect, you can begin to pass sentence on someone else's sin, all right? When we're perfect, the one who is without sin, go ahead and throw the rock, okay? If For those of us who have not quite reached perfection, we are not allowed to pick up rocks and hammer somebody else in their life about their sin. But let me say this. That does not mean, and I've told you this a bunch of times too, I just repeat myself up here. I guess you figured that out. Judgment is used in a couple of different ways in the scripture. One of them, and and what Jesus is talking about here, when when we use the word condemnation, that word means to pass final sentence. When Jesus is about to say to her, neither do I condemn you, he's saying, I don't pass final sentence upon you. He is not saying, I don't think your sin was a problem. I think you should go back and go at it again. That's not what Jesus is saying, okay? He's saying, I am not passing final sentence. Why? Because he's inserting grace, the ability to change, right there. He's telling them, go, He's telling her, go, go from this low point. This was a bad day for you. You were pulled out into public about this. You were were abused and misused in this situation. Go from this day with, with forgiveness, with grace into a new life, into a better life. Sin no more. That's what he says, right? So so he's inserting grace into that. But judgment is also used of, it it also means to discern, okay? And so at times we are told 
as believers, we should know right from wrong. We should know good from evil. And we're not supposed to hide in the closet with that. We are supposed to be the church, the Bible says, is the foundation. It is the pillar, right, of truth in the earth. So yeah, we are supposed to know what is sin, what is not. We aren't supposed to be ugly about it, but we are supposed to know. We are supposed to be a reflection of what godliness is like. There is nothing wrong with you discerning that a certain attitude, behavior, lifestyle, whatever it might be, that that is sin. That's, that's okay. You are supposed to be able to tell the difference between sin and holiness. The Holy Spirit on the inside of you will, will show you that in yourself or in others. But what we can't do and don't do is start declaring what should happen to that person. Instead, we're supposed to go into that and insert grace. We're supposed to bring divine ability. We're supposed to start to intercede for that person because God loves that person. And yes, the love of God is such that he loves us right where we are, but he loves us way too much to leave us there. So again, we have this thing going on in the American church that's really concerning to me. And I know, and I'm not going to name some of the leaders of it. They're very well known. And, and they're preaching a gospel that's not found in the Bible. They're preaching that sin doesn't matter, that truth is elastic. They use that term. It's elastic. It'll conform itself to your life. No, no, we're supposed to be conforming to truth not truth conforming to us. It's the, the progressive wing of the church is just like progressivism anywhere. It's, it's this continual, in fact, it's a, just a reflection of what's going on in the world. So, so people have decided that, well, homosexuality is not a sin. No, homosexuality is a sin. It's not an unforgivable sin, but it is, it is sin. It is not God's best for someone. Okay, and there should be compassion in our hearts for people that are caught in that kind of lifestyle. Um, adultery, oh, it's not a sin, doesn't matter. Yes, it is, and it does matter, and it will ruin your life like any other sin, okay? And just to be clear, since our society is so confused about this, and since, and I, I don't care, I don't, you know, so, so we're streaming this live, I don't care. The truth is, the Bible, adultery. What is adultery? There are people who don't know. It is sexual activity between someone who is married and anybody else, whether they're married, I mean, outside of their partner, right? Whether that other partner is married, whether they're not, that's adultery. It's a breaking of the marriage covenant, okay? Everybody got that? You guys look nervous, okay? So what about if, if neither one is married? Then that's cool. No, that's called fornication, okay? Sex is reserved for inside a marriage covenant. It is. And if, and if most of us growing up, if we didn't grow up in a good Christian home and all of that, we all made those mistakes, okay? I made those mistakes. I've been forgiven of those mistakes, but I'm not going to stand here and say, well, it's okay, because it's not okay. And sin, it's not just that it's bad, it's that sin ruins lives. It is not God's best for people. We should not be afraid to stand up and say that. So any sexual activity outside, and, and the latest deal, or it's not the latest, I don't keep up with them that close, but in the, in the emergent church and all with homosexuality, Oh, well, the word that's translated there only meant pedophilia. It only meant uh, sex between an adult 
and a and a young boy. That's a lie. It doesn't mean that in the it doesn't mean that linguistically. It doesn't mean that in in historically. That word was used of of sex between two men or two women. It is homosexuality. I don't know. This is just I really didn't intend to go this direction. It's just we're in a society that doesn't get this and it's doing a lot of harm. And and again, I hope I'm being clear. What's our role in that? Our role is to love people no matter what they're in. Until you're perfect, okay? We don't get to pick up the rocks. And I'm tired of I'm just screaming today. This is screaming for me. This is about as active as I get. We do not get to pick up rocks. I'm tired of seeing the church get drawn into these real accusatory positions. That's not, it's not what Jesus did here. He set that woman, we don't know what she did, but we know that he set her up for redemption. He set her up for restoration with the way that he treated her. He treated her with dignity. He called out her sin. See, this is a verse, this, this is the kind of passage that gets pulled up by the group I'm talking about. They never read the last part, go and sin no more. They just say, see how nice Jesus was to this person? Yeah, he was, because he wanted her to see the love of God, okay? But we as the church, we still need to have a standard. We still have to have a standard of morality. And listen, I'm talking to people here, people out there, people who will pick this up later. I don't care what you're doing in your life. I'm not here. I am not here to condemn you, to even criticize you. I'm hoping that you get set free because there's something better. There is a way and he will lead you through it to the other side of whatever you're involved in, whatever it is, even if you've made big mistakes that have caused problems, the Lord can fix them. But we do need to come to him with a repentant heart. We need to come to him and say, okay, God, you know my life and you love me anyway. How do I get from here to there? Because that can be really complex. That can be really, we can't figure that out on our own, but God can do it. He can make a way where there seems to be no way. Are you getting anything out of this? This is not the message I have on my notes. But uh, so, so let's just go down into this. Yeah, yeah, awesome. <laughs> uh, so thank you. He didn't ignore her sin because that wouldn't be love. You know, when I was a kid, man, I'm running out of time. It happens every week. When I was a kid, I was a fire bug. I loved fire. I loved explosives. I loved Fourth of July was my favorite holiday. Uh, And it worried my mom because she loved me. And I still remember the night, I don't know how old I was. This was a while ago. We were all, it was Sunday night because everybody was watching Bonanza. So that's, that's how old this was. But when I set fire to our whole haystack out in our side yard, um, it, it became, I think, I remember her sitting me down, and she said this a lot of times to me, but she sat me down and said, she didn't, she didn't spank me. My dad, you know, I mean, they were both there, but 
you know, I didn't even get spanked. She, she foolishly thought that I had been scared enough that I was okay, which wasn't necessarily true, but I took it. But anyway, you know, I remember her saying to me, it's not that I'm mad that you burned down the haystack. It's that I don't want you getting burned, you know? And she said to me over and over as I did things and got punished for them, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't care. And it was true. If she didn't love me, go do whatever you want. You know, go play in the street. You know, go set fire to stuff. You know, but because that's how the love of God is. His love, yes, he loves us right where we are. He doesn't reject anyone. He doesn't push anyone away. He's not freaked out about our sin. But he wants, he's died to give us abundant life. And that's what he wants for us. And so, yes, he will. He won't condemn us, but he will convict us. Conviction. And what Jesus did here, let me just back up a little bit. Um, I, I'm, I'm just going to have to shortcut this. He, he comes to her. First of all, he comes to her once everybody's gone. And he asks her, you know, where are your accusers? She said, uh, nobody left. And he said, neither do I condemn you. And I already said, he's saying, I'm not passing final sentence on you. I'm giving leeway for, for change for you. I'm showing grace to you. And, and she's, her statement there, she said, you know, he said, where are your accusers? There's nobody here to condemn you. She said, no one, sir. That word, sir, is usually translated Lord. Okay, it is usually translated Lord, and in some of your translations, it is translated correctly as Lord. So right there, again, in that little no one, sir, she was saying, I recognize who you are. I recognize that you are Lord. And in that place, with her accepting him as Lord, then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go, get up from here, rise to a new life, go and sin no more, okay? And I believe he's releasing the power to her to do that. I mean, it's not the cross yet, not that, but she had this experience with him that she can come back to at a, at a later time. And so, I th again, I think that's supposed to be our same attitude is we are not afraid to stand for righteousness, but we do understand that our role is to insert grace. And grace never just, he didn't sweep her sin under the rug. He didn't pretend it wasn't there, okay? He didn't do any of that. Let me just, I just want to give you this next little piece and we'll let it, uh, we'll let it go for today. But, but the difference between grace and law, legalism, which is being trying to fix things through law, legalism promote shame. It tries to use shame to break the power of sin. It tells us, but, but shame actually empowers sin. It tells us, shame says, you are essentially broken. You are unworthy. It addresses identity, not behavior. Okay? Shame addresses behavior, uh, identity. Whereas the conviction that the Lord brings 
will address behavior, righteousness. The Bible says that we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. Righteousness is about our identity. It says you are now a child of God. You are now accepted in God. That doesn't change when a person sins. And so that gives the room to say, my behavior is wrong. And as a matter of fact, when I sin, I'm behaving outside of my true identity. I am not behaving like who God has made me to be. I am, I am, my behavior needs to change. The Holy Spirit will come with conviction and say, this behavior does not line up with you, the righteousness of God in Christ, you, a child of God. This behavior is out of line and needs to change. It doesn't say you are broken. Legalism says you are broken. You're unworthy. You'll never be worthy. You'll never be any better. You are who, you know, you are who you are. And shame on you. You put Jesus on the cross. It's your sin. You're a vile person. That's not the message of the New Testament. That is a message of legalistic religion. Okay? So legalism tries to use, bring shame. Grace defeats shame. It says, I love you right where you are, but I've got something better for you, okay? Hypocrisy thrives in legalistic systems, okay? The scripture itself says, and in Romans, you can find Paul writing about this. It says that law, the law was powerless to actually address sin in our hearts. And that in fact, law um, evokes, in a sense, Uh, sin from the flesh. And again, how do we know that? Because when we get right outside this building and we see the 55 mile an hour sign, our first thought is, I wonder if I can go 60. I wonder if I can, you know, I wonder how fast I can go. That's what happens with law. Everybody but Zach. Zach doesn't do that. Uh, But but law, it, it actually pulls on sin in the flesh, okay, Whereas grace and mercy, Bible tells us mercy, the kindness of God, actually leads to repentance, which is a change of thinking and a change of behavior that leads to life. Okay? So law in in this kind of setting, when we're being legalists, when we're just functioning under the law, all we have left is to try to pretend that we're doing okay. We start putting on Masks, which is what hypocrisy means. We start coming to church and pretending we don't have any sin. Instead of coming here and knowing, hey man, I need to grow. I've got issues. And I need to be in the presence of God to see those issues addressed, right? It's, it's just two different, um, if, if we're just functioning under law, then we tend to move into hypocrisy, mask wearing. We, we just have to try and fake it because, you know, uh, we don't really have a choice there. Law always focuses on the outward act, but grace addresses the heart. Grace addresses and brings transformation to the inside so that we can actually live from the inside. Legalism puts sin on a vertical scale. Okay, this sin's worse than this sin is worse than this sin. Grace uh, sees God sees all sin the same as far as its ability to separate us from God. Different sins do have different social consequences. There are sins that will ruin our life more than other sins. No question about it. But as far as from a spiritual perspective, all sin is equal. So, hey, uh, my sin, which is really minor, by the way, um, 
is, is, is just as bad as anyone else's sin. Your sin is on the same scale. So again, we can't be these people that are going, well, their sin is really bad. And, and I'd start this, this thing of, you know, I, I may have problems, but I'm not near as bad as them. That's not, that's not the attitude that we are supposed to be walking around with. Does this make sense to you? Okay. All right. Okay. I think we're, we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. Um, I would encourage you to go the, to the next passage that we don't have time for today. Uh, in John 8, 31, 32, where Jesus talked about how truth will set us free and that if the Son has set us free, we'll be free indeed. He, he talks there about how when we abide in him and abide in his truth, we come into a progressive freedom over sin, over other issues in our life. We come into a progressive freedom in God. And I would encourage you, to me, that's kind of the next piece of this discussion. He starts to tell us how to bring this about in our lives. Okay, I feel like that was another fire hose Sunday, so I hope you're able to snag something as it went by. Let's stand up and pray, and uh, we'll get out of here. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Father, I want to thank you for everything you've done in this place today, Lord. I thank you for our worship team. I thank you for the way they led us. I thank you for those words you gave us to bring healing to people. I thank you this morning for the fellowship that we have together around you and around your word. And Father, I pray that in this and in this discussion, Father, every one of us would find that place of walking in a knowledge of the truth and standing for truth but doing it with your love and your grace, Lord, that, that, that we too could bring truth wrapped in tender mercy. You need, you've just got to keep teaching us how to do it, Lord. You've just got to because you know us. <laughs> you know us. And Lord, that's, but that's who we want to be, and we believe it's who you've called us to be. So Father, I, and I just pray, Lord, as, as this message goes forth, Father, if there is conviction, anywhere in anybody's life. I just thank you, Lord, that you have provided the solution in Jesus going to that cross. You have provided forgiveness that leads to holiness. You've provided kindness that your word says leads us to holiness. And so, Father, I know you have a way forward, no matter where we've gotten ourselves, what hole we've dug, you have a way forward. And Lord, we ask you to reveal that to us because we know you have the words of life. You have the best life for us. So, Father, as we go out into this community and other communities, we just pray, Father, that we will be people that carry your life and and carry your love and carry your grace without compromising truth. Teach us, Holy Spirit, how to do it. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. All right. Listen, we always have some great snacks out here. We hang around fellowship quite a while. Really glad all of you that were visiting with us were here today. We need visitors in the summer because all of our people are scattered through the earth like good seed. Okay, so let's say it on the count of three. Jesus is Lord over the Gundison Basin and the world will be dismissed. One, two, three. Jesus is Lord over the Gundison Basin and the world. Amen. You are listening to a podcast from Rocky Mountain Christian Ministries. For more information about our church, please visit us at rmcmchurch.org.